you know, who truly changed the trajectory of your life? I can honestly say Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chow changed dramatically the trajectory of my life. I don't know what would have happened to me, but I know it would have been different, and certainly I would have missed out on a lot of the things that I've gotten to do. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And welcome to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I am your roundtable host, Joe Arnold, and I'm so happy to be with you every week. And Scott, thanks for allowing me to kind of piggyback on your political punditry fame across the country and be part of this. But this week, this week, Scott Jennings, after all of the roundtables and one-on-one interviews that you have done, and, and some really notable ones, just a few the months of the podcast existence, everywhere from Jake Tapper, your colleague at CNN, to David Axelrod, another one from CNN, come to think of it, uh, David Drucker, Josh Kroshauer, Senator Tim Scott, Senator Mitch McConnell, Eric Erickson. I mean, all across the political spectrum here in terms of, in other words, it's punditry or elected officials or, or journalists, you had a chance to speak to some very interesting people. We have. We've had a great run. We started doing this last year, and I wasn't sure how it was going to go. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people and have, and have been fortunate to meet a lot of people along the way. What's been gratifying is that they've all been willing to give us some of their time. And reflecting on it, um, we've had some really good interviews. Some of these people came on and were just really thoughtful. And the great thing about this format is you can let people talk. This is the difference between TV and uh, and podcasting. You can let people talk. I think about uh, Tim Scott from South Carolina, and he was just really, really thoughtful and articulate about so many issues. The governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, really impressed me. I didn't know him uh, before we did the interview. Really impressive to me. Axelrod uh, was really thoughtful guy. So one of the things I think we're trying to accomplish here with the show is bringing uh, some of these voices uh, that tend to be uh, clustered in and around the, the media centers in the country, but bringing them to a middle America audience and talking to them about things that are on the minds of people in middle America. And that's why uh, we're doing the show. It's called Flyover Country for a reason. Uh, I think a lot of political commentary in this country is is produced uh, on the coasts, and we wanted to produce some in middle America. That's the value we bring. Joe, I'm enormously grateful for your engagement in the show. I think you're coming on and being part of the roundtable and and of course, sort of being our point guard uh, has has really increased the quality of it, and, and you do a lot of work on the show each week, so thank you for that. Uh, well, I, Scott and I have known each other for about 25 years. I mean, going back to the days when you were a University of Louisville student mm-hmm. and and working like 20 hours a day because you were a full-time student, a McConnell scholar at the University of Louisville, working part-time but almost with full-time hours at WHAS Radio, which is, by the way, the 50,000-watt clear channel you know, blowtorch station of middle America from, uh, you know, from Louisville on. And uh, Scott was uh, a a journalist. He was a radio uh, newsman at the time. I was a talk show host. We kind of changed our roles later on where I became a journalist and you became more on the other side of that punditry, obviously. And, uh, but so happy that we can do this together. Uh, But I want to turn the tables on you today, uh, Scott, because you've been the interviewer of all these one-on-ones. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to interview you instead and give me a chance to interview again which I one of my first loves so a and lot what of, you're good at I mean yeah. I mean you you, uh, you you sort of glossed over it but Joe Arnold was one of the most celebrated and important journalists uh, in Kentucky I mean you were the dean of the political journalism 
world here in Kentucky for many years. You're now on the corporate communications side. Welcome, by the way, to the dark side. The dark side. There you go. Uh, but, uh, but Joe was one of the most insightful journalists. Uh, so when we had big campaigns here, if you wanted to find out what was going on, and you know what I always appreciated about uh, your coverage was that you always seemed to find an angle or find some kind of part of the story that the rest of the reporters were missing. You know, I think it's easy in sort of covering races for every you know, conventional wisdom to take hold and everybody feels like they have to do the same story. But you were always willing to go against the grain a little. And I appreciated that about you. And I think it's made you very effective in all the things you've done. I will, that's very kind of you. And I will tell you that having Scott Jennings uh, as a pundit or as an expert or as a campaign spokesperson made my job more fun. It made it, made, it, made it challenging because there were times where you would call me like any other flack would and you know, saying, I can't believe. <laughs> I wish I had some recordings of some of our, uh, some of our tussles. When you, because... when you, when you grilled me on things like that. But, but actually, the podcast kind of reminds me, Scott and I have gone on many baseball trips together, other family trips together, and a lot of these conversations just in the truck. Uh, we sometimes yeah. would turn to each other and we would say, this would make a great podcast. We said it a lot. We said it a lot. I, some of these reminds me, too, of uh, you, you mentioned when uh, I was just a, a student at the University of Louisville. I did get a job as a news anchor at, at WHAS Radio. I couldn't believe they let me on the air. I was a, a disc jockey at a country music station in high school. So I came to college and said, well, I can I can be a news anchor. And so I go down the hallway and and the late Brian Rublin, who was great, I said, look, I, I don't want to work in the promotions department. I don't want to I want to be a news anchor. I want to be on the news. And so he has me read and hired me on the spot. And one of the spots they put me on was the overnight show. Yeah. You're the host. That's right. And so you're doing this amazing show, which can be heard in like 40-something states. 38, I believe, at the time, yeah. 40-something states. And <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on a clear night. And, uh, and so I'm doing the news at the top and bottom of the hour. And after the newscasts were over, we would frequently have you know okay. these moments of banter, and uh, and now we're getting to do it on this, and so and it was full circle for our uh, for our media relationship. So a lot of folks, uh, and you've been on CNN now for five years. We'll get back to that here in a minute, as far as your your uh, celebrity on CNN and really part of the the, the top panels uh, there on on that network. But I, I was thinking, Scott, about the devastating tornadoes that struck western Kentucky. Actually, it struck a number of states, but especially Mayfield, Dawson Springs, other other counties uh, throughout, uh, especially western Kentucky, in early December. And a lot of folks who knew you from CNN did not know uh, about your upbringing or where you're from, but suddenly your hometown being destroyed uh, in that tornado, Dawson Springs, at least much of it was, um, thrust you into that uh, that that light. Obviously, that's not the reason that, or the the way you'd want to introduce your hometown to the rest of the world. But it was an interesting juxtaposition, I would think, for you. Yeah, I remember that first morning, you know, right after it happened, and and there were no news crews on the scene yet, and it was the the dark of Saturday morning, uh, and we were all trying to figure out what happened. Actually, uh, CNN had me call in and sort of describe basically to the viewers where is Dawson Springs? You know what. Tell us about the geography, you know, tell us about this part of western Kentucky, you know, from Mayfield all the way up through, you know, the line of the tornadoes. And so I was on there essentially, just as you said, describing what these towns are like and, and what the geography is like and, and and where on the map. If you had your globe out, where where is this exactly? Uh, and that was before we really knew how bad it was. 
And so CNN, by the way, I think did such a terrific job covering the tornadoes. They were first on the scene. They were there for a long time and really uncovering some of the stories and the plight of the people of West Kentucky, who are, by the way, are going to need our help and support for years. I mean, the kind of devastation that was wrought isn't fixed overnight. And so being able to um, be a voice uh, of support for Dawson Springs and West Kentucky to the world was very gratifying. It was horrible circumstances, but I do feel like the people there got their story told and they got the attention that they needed and that they deserved. And I was glad to be a small part of that. You know, CNN has me on as a political analyst, uh, you know, pundit, whatever. And, and, uh, often, uh, uh, I'm portrayed as the conservative voice on the panel, but as much as anything too, I feel like part of my job is to represent middle America and how political conversations and occurrences are striking people in middle America. You know, not very many pundits are from middle of the country. A lot of them live in Washington or New York or on the coast, and that's where they come from. And so uh, as much as I'm on there to be the conservative voice and speak for the, you know, the, that wing of, of American political spectrum, I'm also trying to reflect authentically middle America. And so the tornadoes were a chance to, to remind people, this is where I come from, these are my people, and, and this is what we're going through. And tell me about Dawson Springs and your and your childhood there. Dawson Springs uh, was a great place to grow up. Uh, it was an old uh, well. It, it had an interesting history. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century, it was a tourist destination. Uh, they had mineral water spring, hence the springs. Well, actually, that's an interesting thing. They didn't have springs; they had wells. Okay. Uh, Hamby's Well was the first ever. Springs sounds more attractive. That's exactly what the marketing people thought. So instead of calling it Dawson Wells, they called it Dawson Springs. So they had these wells, and they produced this this mineral water, which was thought to have therapeutic uh, properties. And so they built these massive hotels. The New Century was the most famous. And people would come from all over to bathe in this water and to be around this water. The Pittsburgh Pirates came to Dawson Springs and did spring training. Uh, there because of the therapeutic properties of the water. So for a period of time, it was a, a tourist destination. That faded, and then the, there were big fires, and the hotels burned down. And, of course, uh, other things happened, such as western Kentucky became a massive coal field. And so Dawson Springs is in the middle of a huge coal field. I grew up, in fact, on a road called Mine Equipment Road. And so the coal mining industry very much became the lifeblood of that entire region. But, you know, that, that's obviously uh, faded, too, uh, you know, as we get uh, towards the end of the 20th century and the 21st century. And now, like a lot of towns uh, in West Kentucky and like a lot of towns in, in middle rural America, Dawson Springs has struggled, you know, to find that next thing and to find that identity that will carry it into the future. The people there are terrific. The faith is strong. They're loyal to their region. They're loyal to each other. Family bonds are strong. The school, Dawson Springs Independent Schools, where I went to school, is really the center of life in Dawson Springs, uh, and uh, and and it really knits people together across generations. You know, my father uh, was a basketball player at Dawson Springs High School. My sister and I played sports for different teams at uh, for the Purple Panthers, and and so um, you know you do have these cross generational knitting together, and it all a lot of it runs through the school system. I know often in small-town America, the school is, is kind of that, uh, that tie that binds people together, and, and I still consider myself to be a, a proud Panther. I know when people watch network news and, and some of the folks who reach the echelons that you have in terms of this attention, there's just an assumption you all kind of 
you know, you were born on third base. You know, you, you're, a, you're an Ivy Leaguer. You're, I mean, heck, you're, you're a Harvard pro- professor right now at the Kennedy School. We'll talk about that uh, coming up. But uh, maybe kind of set us straight on uh, do, do you have an Ivy League pedigree? No, I don't, actually. I, uh, I went to a public school, Dawson Springs Independent Schools, uh, which is an extremely small uh, school system in a very, very poor area. Uh, I had great teachers. Uh, I think back on some of the teachers I had, and 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 uh, I still hear from some of them uh, from time to time. But but in every subject, I had an amazing teacher. English. I'm a writer now, and I had an amazing English teacher. Two of them actually that that I remember, Miss Johnston and Miss uh, Walker. Uh, I had you know I, I sort of deal in political and public affairs, and I had a social studies teacher named Fred Nally, who I still hear from occasionally. And Fred really cultivated my love for. Uh, American history, American politics, and our and our social studies. I mean, that's what it was called, and and I loved it from the minute I had Fred Nally and, and have been in it ever since. I had great math teachers. I had an old biology teacher named Carl Buzzard who, you know, taught me how to identify every every tree uh, leaf in in Western Kentucky. And so I think about the school being small in a rural area, very poor, but the richness of the education. I did not have, uh, you know, a wealthy upbringing. I'm the son of a garbage man and a factory worker. And uh, my dad worked at the landfill for, for many years and worked in factories. So did my stepmom. And we grew up, uh, you know, okay. Uh, uh, but, but, but by no means was Dawson Springs an area of, of wealth at all. And so um, I carry that with me every day. Uh, and, uh, and I'm enormously grateful for, for the upbringing and for everything my parents in my town did for me. Um, and I carry it with me in everything that I do. And I think about uh, the world we live in today, and I think about the people who, who have children in, in, in those environments. And I think a lot about, you know, how do we give more people, how do we give more kids a chance to achieve the way I did? I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I worked hard, but I got lucky. And, and I met people along the way who did something for me, who made something possible for me. Uh, and the more we can do that for, for kids in rural America, the better off we'll be. I think about that, about all the talent that our country has, and I wonder sometimes about the people who don't get the break, Yeah, who maybe, if, if, if not for that one instance or that one person who advocates for you and recognizes, you know, I think this person might have a future, let me see what I can do for them or kind of connect them, I know that just knowing you professionally now, Scott, that you take a special joy in identifying talent and finding maybe maybe the job they're applying for is not the right or exactly the right fit, but you know someone else who might be in that position. It seems to me that's something you've carried with you from the people who recognize your talent at a young age. I have a I feel like I have a special responsibility to help people get to where they need to be. And I, I get approached a lot uh, for by people who who want jobs or who want advice for career stuff, and I really do try to to uh, to help folks get to where they they need to be and where I think they should be and where they can achieve something where they can achieve their dream. This happened to me, you know. I was a, a high school kid, and uh, look, we we didn't have any money, and you know, my parents dealt with numerous layoffs, factory layoffs. I mean, it it, it was truly a you know, the story of middle America in the 80s and 90s where you just had a lot of economic upheaval and and, uh, and we lived through that. And uh, uh, I met in, in high school, I met Mitch McConnell, Kentucky's senator, and wound up 
applying for the McConnell Scholarship at the University of Louisville. Along the way, I also met his wife, Elaine Chow, uh, and because of her, wound up applying for a Coca-Cola scholarship. She was doing some work, I think, with Coca-Cola. And, and I ended up with a McConnell scholarship to the University of Louisville, and I ended up with a Coca-Cola scholarship. And those two things combined meant I was able to go to college for free and not incur any debt. And, uh, and I say all the time, if it hadn't been for their intervention, not that they, I don't think they personally chose the, the winners, but certainly they set up situations where people like me, in the case of the McConnell Scholarship, McConnell started the McConnell Center, raised all the money for it, and, and, and it was designed for people like me, kids in Kentucky who wanted to be part of public service, part of public affairs, who wanted to go to school in, the, in Kentucky. You know, this is what he was setting up. And, uh, and so had he not done that, had that intervention not occurred, I don't know what I would have done, honestly. I, 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 did, I mean, we had nothing. And, uh, and so you, you often you, you think about in the course of a life, you know, who truly changed the trajectory of your life? I can honestly say Mitch McConnell and Elaine Chow changed dramatically the trajectory of my life. I don't know what would have happened to me, but I know it would have been different and certainly I would have missed out on a lot of the things that I've gotten to do. A quick aside about the McConnell Center, and you joined it very early on in its existence. I don't know, maybe, maybe the second or third class? Yeah, uh, I, I went to school in um, 19, fall of 96. I think they started it in 92, and so the first class had just graduated, and so we, you know, we were still very much building it. The director of it was, a, uh, he's since passed, a, a professor named Dr. Paul Weber, who was enormously impactful to me. Paul Weber was was absolutely a beautiful person. He was a great academic. He was a great friend. He was a great mentor. He and I did not share any political views, but we did share a love of Kentucky. We shared a love of learning. He, you know, he we shared a love of 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 how Americans communicate with each other, civil discourse, and and he was one of the key reasons I ended up coming to U of L at all because when I interviewed for the McConnell scholarship, I, you know, I just met this guy Paul Weber, and he was unlike anyone I'd ever met. But at that time, the center was still very much you know figuring itself out. Now, it's much different than when I was there. These the people the kids interact with, the trips they take, the <laughs> the kinds of opportunities they have. But the thing has has really grown on itself and 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 become something. You know, it's the kind of a program now that you would expect to hear about at an Ivy League school, and yet it resides at the University of Louisville in Middle America. And I'm, I'm enormously proud that we have it here. I want to point out, by the way, because I was I covered that. I mean, I moved to Louisville in '94, so it was right when it was in its uh, burgeoning status there, and and really enjoyed the access to some of the national folks that, as a result of McConnell's uh, influence across the country, he was able to bring in. But to be clear about it, and, and because there's often a misnomer, whenever the national media comes in and the event at the McConnell Center, they kind of regard it as sort of a farm system for conservatives. And you know from your own classmates and people who are there today, there it is nonpartisan. It is a complete, uh, it is truly public service and politics. Yeah, the, the McConnell Center is a, is a nonpartisan scholarship program, and the students are chosen not by Mitch McConnell, but by... Uh, the the academics at the center and a panel of people that they use to to assess the the applicants. Uh, I went to college with a great many non conservatives. I can assure you, and then they they produce a lot of uh, kids these days who are, are of the liberal persuasion. Not everybody, by the way, who who goes to the McConnell Center winds up in politics. In fact, very few of us over the years have worked directly in it. 
Uh, lately, we've had a few great electoral successes. The Attorney General of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, was a McConnell scholar. Mike Adams, uh, my old roommate, uh, a couple years older than me, but uh, from West Kentucky, is the Kentucky Secretary of State. He was a scholar. But a lot of folks just go off and become doctors and lawyers and other professionals. But what they learn at the McConnell Center is how to be a good citizen and what it means to be a citizen leader. And and that's the great that's the great thing McConnell set up was setting up you know this next generation of leadership. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in politics. And we've produced a lot of great students who went on to other professions but exercised leadership in those domains. You know, some of the biggest names that McConnell has brought in and Gary Gregg, the current director, longtime director over the years. Uh, some of the biggest names have been Democrats and been liberal. I mean, Ted Kennedy, Robert Byrd, Robert Byrd. I remember he Hillary was Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine yeah. Albright, Ted Kennedy. You mentioned, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, over the years, I, mean, I just look the, in my head and the people as a result of uh, them coming to town. Then, as a reporter, I'm like, I have an opportunity to get a crack at these people too. Yeah. So that's one thing about uh, just an aside. Uh, Chuck Schumer. That's I right. Think, I think yeah, he was I there. Was You're right. right. Yeah. But in terms of first of all, McCon- interviewing McConnell. As a, as a journalist, you have to up your game. And I always had to feel like I had to study ahead of time and be prepared. You, you were playing in the major leagues, even if you were in a number 50 market across the country. The reason I bring this up, Scott, is that it seems to me that then you were thrust. Here you go from Dawson Springs High School. You meet Professor Weber. Had about 30 in my class. Right, 30, exactly. <laughs> and But suddenly then, you are, you are then surrounded almost immediately by this whole, I mean, this world has just been opened up to you of these people who are at the heights of their professions in politics and public service. It, it, it's almost a, a situation where you know you're doing something big and you know you're doing something important, but it's hard to understand it at the time. Like it, Only with time, the, the passage of time, as uh, Kamala Harris said the other day, <laughs> only with the passage of time do you realize uh, just just the enormous opportunity that it was. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's also overwhelming and, and big. Um, and, uh, and, and you realize over time just how shaping it was, you know, uh, to, to be able to operate in those circles and to be able to interact with people like that, it shapes you and it, and it gives you confidence. You may not realize it at the time, but you're learning to operate and you're learning to be part of the larger professional world at the age of 18, 19, 20 years old, when most people don't learn those skills, if they ever do, until long into their professional career. You know, there's a certain precociousness, which is important as a, as a youth who wants to be successful in those kind of environments. But at the same time, I would think that, I don't know, were you always this confident? Or did that sort of breed that by, because it seems to me that as soon as you realize, you come out of a conversation and say, wait, I just talked to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. John Roberts, for instance, is one of the people who has been through the McConnell Center. If after you have a conversation and you, you know, uh, you acquit yourself relatively professionally and well, to me, you come out of that thinking, okay, I can do this. I, I always felt confident as a as a kid. I think some of it I owe to the fact that I, I did land a radio job when I was a teenager, and there is something about pushing that on air button and and opening your mouth and talking. You don't know how many people you're talking to, but you you know you're talking to more than a handful. And so that that helped me build some confidence as a kid. Uh, but but the McConnell Center only added to it, which then allowed me to think of myself in ways that that I wouldn't have otherwise, you know, conceived of. And so uh, it it just gives you the the McConnell Center gave me this thought, which is I, I can really do big things. I can really be whatever I want to be. I can really go to the highest level of whatever direction I take if I want to. Uh, I belong. 
you know, it's like, and I think, and I think ultimately for a lot of rural kids, there is that question of, are they going to let me in? You know, am I going to have access? Are they really going to treat me like I belong? And, and the McConnell Center built that for me. And that's one of the things I try to talk to kids about today that, that asked me for advice is you have to act like you belong and you have to, you have to be that person. Don't, don't let them shut the door in your face. You know, you're coming from where you come from. They need to hear from you that your perspective is valuable and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I'm going to skip out of chronological order here and talk about uh, your experience right now at the Kennedy school at Harvard. Uh, where you've been teaching now for how many years? Is it two or three years? I started my first uh, uh, foray into the Kennedy School was in 2018. I was a, a resident fellow at the Institute of Politics, so I lived on campus for a semester. And then after that, uh, I built a course with my friend who I met at Harvard, Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, who I absolutely adore. Robbie is a great guy. And uh, and I is, really is, is he in the reserves? Is, he has yeah, a, a, he's in the U.S. Naval Reserves, and he was just activated for like over a year, I think, uh, and and was in Afghanistan during the fall of of the airport at Kabul and, and the evacuation, and and he's got an amazing story to tell. Maybe we'll get him on here sometime to tell it. But Robbie and I built this course, and the idea was to have two political operatives, one from each party really talk to the students, not about ideologies, but about the business of politics, the language of political operativism, and also this, to model civil discourse. Because I think in the, in, the, in the current political era, there's an assumption that Republicans and Democrats, like Robbie and Scott, couldn't even talk to each other. And that's just not true. And, and we try to do that in the classroom and show people that, hey, politics is a business and, and there's something to learn from people who may not have the same views as you. And we also have a lot of guests uh, that we bring in, which candidly is something I learned at the McConnell Center. One of the great education values of the McConnell Center is the guests they bring and that you interact with. I'm trying to model that in my class. So I bring in people to the class that I think the students might not otherwise encounter, but there's something to learn from. In fact, Monday night um, uh, this week, I had in my class former Congressman Barney Frank, a Democrat from Massachusetts, he was live. I had Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. Live as in, in person. Yeah, he was there. Yeah, Jen Psaki zoomed in from her basement, quarantined. She's got COVID. Um, and then we had Caitlin Collins from CNN and Maggie Haberman from the New York Times. I mean, it was the night of stars. But I think about the students that I have now. They all want to sort of be part of politics, the, the profession, public affairs business. Interacting with those people gave them something. It's not academic exactly, but there is something in that for them that they'll carry away that enhances their education. That's what I'm going for in this class. Yeah, and you have to be, you can't help it, I would think, to, to, to kind of lean on your own personal experience and what the McConnell Center meant to you. And Do you ever see any kind of glimmers of, like, this person reminds you of, of, of yourself out in the classroom? Well, you do meet some students who really, really want to be political operatives. You know, they want to work on campaigns. They want to run campaigns. They want to be consultants. They want to run for office. I mean, we have a lot of students like that in our class. We actually, this year, interestingly, too, we have a lot more international students who have been involved in the political systems in their country. In Germany, I know we've got a few German students. India, we've got some uh, students who've been involved in the political system. So, um, even the kids who come from other places, you see themselves in you a little bit and that they're doing what you did, except they're doing it back in their home country and they intend to go home and run for office or, or help a politician. And so you realize that, um, that 
there, there is worldwide impact here to be had because um, and, and you also realize that the United States of America and our system, for all of its faults and all the, the things you don't like about it today, it is recognized around the world as the best political system. I firmly believe that. And I don't just mean in terms of our Constitution and our founding principles. Our free speech, our political campaigns, the way we talk to each other, the way we communicate with voters, we are recognized, Americans are recognized as the experts in politics in the world. Yeah, I think other countries look at us and say, well, yeah, in an ideal world you can do that, but we don't have the luxury because of this factor or that factor. But thankfully our our uh, our civil liberties are still in place to be able to protect those. A lot of American campaign methods get exported, you know, to other places. And you do see American political consultants working in other countries and sort of exporting what they've learned in their campaigns here to races elsewhere. I think that's a good thing for the United States, whether it's a, you know, a, a Democrat or Republican operative. I think it's a good thing when the United States exports, you know, our brand of democracy. Now, my, in my memory, you haven't counseled any campaigns internationally, but you have been like an election observer and lectured or, or, or spoken in other countries about what goes on here. I have. I've, I've done some election observation work. Uh, when I was a special assistant to President George W. Bush, I did some. And then uh, more recently, I've, I've gone on a few trips internationally and had some uh, interactions with the electoral system and, 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 and uh, people who were in elective office in Europe and in Africa. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting to learn about what they do, how they do it, why they do the things that they do. But it's also interesting to listen to the questions you get from them about American politics. There's a hunger for what we do and how we do it in our politics. And I, I think that's, you know, it, it all, all issues aside, um, you have to remember that. We are the light of the world in so many ways. The United States is the light of the world. That extends to our politics. People watch us very carefully about how and why we do things. And they want to know because they might want to do it too. And so if you happen to be in the business, remember that. You're, whether you know it or not, what you're doing may be setting an example for others in other countries. So I have a, a 17-year-old son, he'll be 18 in July. We're, we've been to more than, a, I don't know, a dozen campuses across mainly the Midwest, but also the Northeast. And, okay, I'm in my, my mid-50s. I just admit this. It's been a long time since I spent a great deal of time on a campus. It was, um, it's been just kind of jarring, just the overall wokeness of the world on these college campuses. And I bring this up, Scott, because I have to wonder, your flyover country representative to the the, the analyst or political class, you know, on, on CNN and elsewhere, you obviously are a conservative, you're a Republican, and yet you are a professor at Harvard. How do you um, find that? Well, I find it quite well, to be honest with you. Uh, when I first went in 2018, I wondered how it was going to be. Uh, but I have been treated with nothing but respect, candidly. Uh, the, the other faculty, uh, people who are involved in the leadership, Mark Guerin, the head of the Institute of Politics, who's also been in my classroom this year uh, doing part of the co-professor duties as we waited for Ravi to return from his public service. The students, um, I mean, across the board, it, it's been a really good experience. Now, that having been said, I know that I am in the vast minority on that campus in terms of my political views and the things that I believe are, are, are not what most of the people who are walking around that campus believe. But the one thing I, I do appreciate is that at the Kennedy School, it appears to me that one of the reasons I am there is because they do value the prospect of modeling civil discourse 
So we, as I mentioned, Robbie and I designed this class to be taught by a Republican and a Democrat. And it's one of the things I appreciate about the IOP, the Institute of Politics, is that they're bringing in speakers from both sides of the aisle. They had Chris Christie in the other night, um, uh, and he did a great job. And so I like being part of that. So the way I find it is, look, I know, I know I'm behind enemy lines here, <laughs> you know, so to speak. But at the same time, um, you want to show people that this conservative Republican from middle America, uh, there's, there's something of value in interacting with people that you don't normally interact with. And, and I try to, and I try to do that at Harvard. Frankly, I try to do it at CNN to be candid with you because, you know, um, a lot of people you see on TV are not, are not conservatives, not Republicans, or the people that, that are claiming to be Republicans tend to hate all Republicans. And so, uh, but, but there, there is, there is something of value in being able to have open, free, civil debate conversation about our political affairs, whether you're doing it on TV or you're doing it in the classroom. There's something of value in that, and we're losing it, uh, and we have to recover it. A few years ago, I recruited Scott to be uh, on the board and a member of a group called the Louisville Forum, uh, which is a public discussion group which prides itself on civil discourse. Uh, and the, the whole concept of this, Scott, that you and I have been talking about a lot recently is the idea of introducing topics, questions, and panelists that are outside of one's own bubble. And it makes me wonder about, when you're talking about that, it, it, it was reminiscent of, I have to wonder about some of these Harvard students. When you open your mouth, I'm thinking maybe that at the beginning of the year, it's possible that you are the first Republican they've ever met, that you're the first person that are, you know, at least have maybe engaged with or in purposefully, and I'm just curious, have you ever seen any eyebrows raise? Any any sort of like looks of like just having to register what you're saying from your class or not? Oh, yeah. The, the concept of people being in bubbles is a real one. Um, not at Harvard, but I, I do some corporate speaking, and I got invited to a big company. You'd know it if I said it. I got invited to a uh, – they were doing like a diversity uh, training day, so they wanted to have some political speakers and so I got there, and I realized I was the diversity. <laughs> and uh, and I actually, as I did my presentation and uh, did it with another a political speaker who was a Democrat, and, and afterwards, uh, a guy came up to me, and he said, I'm pretty sure you're the first Republican I've ever met. And it, it was, it's kind of funny to hear that. You know, we're living in a huge country, and there's a lot of us, and there's a lot of Democrats, and a lot of Republicans, but the concept that you wouldn't know somebody who has different political views from you, or that at least you don't know anybody who's willing to admit it. And I think that is is something that that uh, I think about a lot where, you know, how many people in this country are nervous about disclosing their political views? If you happen to be on a college campus and you're conservative, I hear all the time from people who say, I, I really don't want anyone to know, but I'm a conservative. They're worried about the implications of being outed as a conservative. I think this is happening in corporations, too. We got to end this. It's ridiculous uh, that we're we're that we're running around trying to cancel each other because we disagree. Americans, uh, um, you know, the American Republic was founded by people, a bunch of people who disagreed with each other on a heck of a lot, but they had common purpose, and uh, and the purpose wasn't to cancel each other. The purpose was to build something great, and so um, that's what I'm trying to get across. I think to the students is uh, and, and and to some of these speaking engagements I have is. You know, there, there's a lot we don't agree on. There's a lot we do, uh, but our purpose is the same. 
You mentioned a couple of students that you've seen in your classrooms over the last several years at Harvard have might have a political operative future. How old were you or at, at what point at, at University of Louisville and McConnell Center did you think to yourself, you know, I might want to be in this game for a career? Well, I, when I was a little kid, my grandfather was a local elected official. He was a magistrate uh, and served in the Hopkins County Fiscal Court. He was a Democrat. Uh, he was also a mayor of Dawson Springs before I was born. And so I grew up around very hyper-local politics and from a young age, I knew that it was awesome. Uh, riding around in my granddad's uh, station wagon as he would go out and respond to constituents, look at potholes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I had it sort of in me from a young age. When I went off to the University of Louisville, I actually truly for many years, for most of my time, I thought I was going to be a journalist. I wanted to cover politics and I wanted to be in the conversation, but I thought I was going to be a journalist. But then something happened to me, which was, at the conclusion of my senior year, right at the conclusion in the year 2000, I got a phone call from Mitch McConnell uh, who said, um, when are you going to get off the sidelines and get into the game? I'll never forget it. And uh, How old are you now at this point? You're 20? 20, 22. You're about to graduate. Being a, I'm serving as a news anchor at WHAS, and, and he was recruiting me to go to work for then Texas Governor George W. Bush. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. Uh, I think he's right. And so I had a, a, a trip to China. I had to go do a study abroad in China. And when I got back, I became one of the leaders of the Bush campaign in Kentucky. And we won. And, and from there, the rest is history. So after you, you uh, George W. Bush won the presidency, you didn't work for, at the White House immediately. No, I stayed in Kentucky. Well, I went to the presidential inaugural committee where I was part of the team that produced the opening ceremonies at the Lincoln Memorial, which was pretty cool. My job was to procure as many porta potties as possible for the massive crowd. Important job. It, it it is actually very important, and I think probably had we not had the porta potties, we'd still be talking about it today. <laughs> so the fact that I did my job means that the focus was on President Bush, the First Lady, Ricky Martin, Jessica Simpson. We had a, an all star lineup. But I came home to Kentucky, worked in local politics, worked for the Senate president for a bit, but really wanted to do campaigns. So I worked on Mitch McConnell's O2 campaign, a big success. Worked on Ernie Fletcher's We say worked on. What, what, what are you doing? I was the, uh, for Mitch McConnell, I was his political director and his communications director in the O2 in the O2 campaign. So what is that? Give me a, a task. Organizing. Uh, we had, you know, field operations all over the state. We had local uh, grassroots leaders. So really uh, uh, building Mitch McConnell's political organization. Also that year, we had a number of other Republican races on the ballot, uh, especially in the state Senate that he cared deeply about. And so I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, and then as a communications matter, back in those days, we still had a few journalists running around that wanted to cover campaigns in Kentucky. And so I was the the principal uh, um, uh, conduit for the campaign to those reporters. And that's where you and I reacquainted ourselves. We, we kept in touch, of course, over the years yeah. uh, in a variety of ways, including through fantasy baseball leagues. But yeah. but but we, but we that's where I would run into you again and interview you in, in that era. But it seems to me that uh, by virtue of building Mitch McConnell's political network, or at least building upon it, you're also building your own. Yeah, you meet a lot of people. And then I was able to parlay that experience into 2003, where I did the same kind of work for Ernie Fletcher, who was running for governor. And we elected the first Republican governor in Kentucky since 1967. And then I went back off to work for Bush again. I love George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. 
And I moved to New Mexico in 2004 and ran his campaign out there in the land of enchantment. Now, bear in mind, at this point, New Mexico had gone for Al Gore. Correct. In the year 2000. By 366 votes. So this was interesting for you to be assigned to this state that was a swing state in that regard. I had never been there in my life uh, and got out there and spent the whole year out there. And it was just a knockdown, drag-out campaign, nip-tuck the entire way. Had a whole different voting system. They had early voting out there. I'd never experienced that in Kentucky. Uh, and so, it, and, and the issues were different. You know, you're out in the Southwest. Um, the population is different. Uh, the players are different. I mean, it, it, it really was uh, a stretching experience for me uh, to go to a totally different place where you know nobody. The issues are different. And, and the race between George W. Bush and John Kerry was really close. And, and New Mexico mattered from the first day I was there to the day it ended. Remind me, were, what year were you and Autumn married? We got married in 2004 okay, during I, the campaign. I was going to say, I thought around the same time. I came home to get married <laughs> right. and, uh, and immediately went back to work in New Mexico. We took our honeymoon. We got around to it in uh, December of 06. So she was very patient with me on the, <laughs> on the honeymoon. So 04, though, is also, I would think, you know, talking about the pivotal years, in terms of the fact that uh, New Mexico then was one of the few states that switched. Two states switched, yeah. Uh, was it Iowa? Iowa was the other, uh, and Bush uh, picked that one up as well. Uh, we won by 5,988 votes, I think, um, uh, in New Mexico. So just incredibly close out of hundreds of thousands of votes cast. I mean, it's a really close race. What were you most proud of as far as what you did in New Mexico to help make that happen? I think uh, the campaign's focus on non-traditional coalition building was the reason it won, and turnout in rural counties, to be honest. Um, so we reached out to a lot of Hispanic parents who, you don't, you know, you didn't think of Hispanics as being a traditional Republican voting coalition, but Hispanic parents really bought into Bush's idea that schools must be better, that, that, that if we don't have better schools, we can't give our children the next iteration of the American dream. So we did a lot of that. But then rural turnout was huge. Uh, and it's one of the campaigns where I really learned and, and started to think about the power of the Republican Party could be in, in rural America. And it was in that campaign. We had massive turnout in the rural areas. And, of course, you know, fast forward to today's time, uh, that's how Donald Trump, you know, won his election in 2016 and how Republicans nearly pulled it off again in 20. It was rural turnout, the power of, of, of rural organizing. And, uh, and so... Those are a couple of things that stand out to me. We also pioneered some technology in that campaign around, we called it micro-targeting, where instead of just looking at geographic precincts and counties, we actually were looking at data on people, household by household, and talking to them about the issues they cared about, not because they lived on a particular street, but because we knew that's what they cared about. And we really kind of were on the cutting edge of that, and it's kind of the norm in campaigns today. So in 2000, you're a senior in college, you're a a radio uh, news announcer, fast forward only four years, which is not a long time. And suddenly you're at the point where Carl Rove is calling you after the, the victory in New Mexico saying, come work at the White House. And, uh, and it was an honor to get that call, especially since on election day, I'd gotten a call from my boss at the campaign, Terry Nelson, who was the national political director for Bush, who called me to reassure me that despite the fact that we were going to lose New Mexico, that everyone knew how hard I'd worked and that, that I'm sure they'd find some amazing job for me somewhere in the, in the federal bureaucracy. And I told him on the phone, I don't think we're going to lose. And he said, well, 
I mean, how do you think you're going to win? Look at the early votes. The Democrats have, have just such a lead on you. And I said, well, I think we're going to win by five or 10,000 votes. And we did. And so uh, to go from that conversation to winning to getting invited to work in the White House Office of Political Affairs was quite a thrill. And I, obviously, the White House, I, I know your patriotism. I've been with you in, in Washington and, and in Frankfurt, our state capital here. Um, and I know that you're, you never tire or become jaded by being able to have access to, to, to those uh, incredible places. But I have to ask you, when the offer came in, just emotionally for you, personally for you, what was that like? I mean, it was uh, it was shocking. You know, it was it, it's it was hard to imagine because that was the dream. When I first went to, to work for George W. Bush in 2000, I told people at the time I would really love to go in the White House. And I meant go in it like would they maybe let me come in one day and see and look <laughs> around. Uh, and uh, and not only did that happen, but I got invited to work in it. And um, and it, and <clears throat> what was really meaningful for me was just how thinking about how hard I'd worked in campaigns, how hard I'd worked in school, all the things that my parents had sacrificed to make sure I had, you know, what I needed to 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 succeed. You know, all that comes welling up uh, in in a moment like that. And um, uh, it, when I walked through those doors the first day, just just walking in and 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 looking at the majesty of the whole thing. Uh, it, it was it was overwhelming, candidly, uh, because you don't imagine growing up in Dawson Springs that they're going to let you within spitting distance of the White House, let alone have a job in there. And so, uh, again, it was another one of those moments in my life where I felt like I was carrying rural America or middle America with me. You know, I was there because of some of the things I'd done and, and some of the people I'd been fortunate to meet, but I always feel like I'm carrying it with me. All of my background, all of my classmates, all of my upbringing—I'm carrying it with me and making sure uh, not to not to forget where I came from. And so, you know, in government and at that level, you know, a lot of people you meet are are from the coasts, Ivy Leaguers. You know, they they know people, their families knew people, but I didn't, and I wasn't. And uh, and so, as much as being uh, being there for my politics, I felt like I was there to faithfully represent Middle America. You talked about the experience from the very beginning with uh, helping to build some of Mitch McConnell's network in Kentucky. You mentioned the porta potties at the inauguration. The reason I bring these things up is that there are so many details that need to be taken care of, and somebody has to do them. And that's where it seems to me, just knowing you for as long as I have, is that you have never seen yourself as being above a task or a detail, and that's where I would think it really would be crucial for someone in the White House, because otherwise, those those are the kind of mistakes that can be that are very easy because everyone's looking around saying that's not my job. Oh yeah, and in the political affairs office for Bush, um, details is a good way to put it. We did handle a lot of the details. The president is the titular head of of his political party, and what comes with that is just this enormous amount of details, whether it's events or interactions with candidates and party committees. You know, we had a huge role in the president's domestic travels. Who's he going to meet when he gets off the plane? Uh, things of that nature. I mean, little details that you don't think about, but somebody has to take care of it. I also had a huge role in personnel. You know, the president has to appoint uh, thousands of people to political things, everything from boards and commissions to the Supreme Court to cabinet jobs to political appointees in the agencies. And we, and we had a mission to help try to find people who had supported the president's agenda faithfully who wanted to serve and get them to Washington. When I took that job in the personnel zone 
Andy Card, uh, who was the White House chief of staff, told me that there's a tendency uh, in a White House to, to restrict your thinking to people who are within three blocks of it. And one of the missions he gave me was think about people from everywhere else who would make great public servants and try to get them here. And so, uh, and that's a detail that's often overlooked is finding people that, that wouldn't ordinarily have a chance, but who would be great and bringing them to Washington. It's what happened to me. And, uh, say, and so this is, this is the through line of your entire yeah, career, even I was, to today. And I was able to bring in and, and help the president meet and appoint a lot of people who might not have otherwise made it. And, you know, we had people from Kentucky that I had met, New Mexico, and, and, and we had a staff in the political affairs office, and we each had responsibilities for different states. And so I talked to my guys uh, all the time, like, listen, think about in these states, people you met along the way, people you know that have a specific expertise or they know something, they can do something, and just ask them. Would you ever consider taking an appointment? Would you ever come to Washington? And I think you'll be surprised at what you turn up. And we did turn up a lot of new people. And I think George W. Bush gave a lot of people a chance to serve that that might not have otherwise had it. And I'm enormously proud of that. I'm always interested when I watch, and I've never served in the White House or any political. I mean, I've always just been a journalist or now, like you said, corporate comms, if you will. And so I look at the sort of the fraternity of people who could through there. I know that you've gone to reunions in Texas, for instance, with some of the the uh, the, the W squad there. Is what is that like in terms of what is that what is that shared experience? How does that actually gel you? Well, not only do you have a shared experience with the people you served with, but also other people who served in other administrations. I mean, you mentioned David Axelrod when we started. Uh, he and I worked together on CNN, but we have a real camaraderie over the fact that we both served a president in the White House and, and in a presidential campaign. And so there is, a, I think, a larger fraternity of people who serve in this kind of uh, politics in this area. Uh, and that's been fun uh, to talk to people about their experiences and, and what was the same and what was different. What you'll find is a lot of commonality uh, across Democrat and Republican administrations about the nature of their job and what they had to do and some of the problems they had to solve. So that's been, that's been fun to realize. Uh, for all of us who served in George W. Bush, uh, you know, there is a real camaraderie. But it, I, will, I will have to say it's been interesting lately in the, in the, in the Trump era to watch people veer off from each other. Uh, you had a, a number of people who worked for President Bush who immediately became never-Trumpers. You had a number of people who immediately supported Donald Trump. You had people who, you know, voted for him but didn't love everything. I mean, you, you had a lot of people going different directions. And watching how that actually has manifested itself has been has been quite interesting. And it's also happening now with Liz Cheney, the representative from Wyoming. You know, I'm a huge Dick Cheney guy. I mean, I love Dick Cheney and, and, uh, and learned a lot from him and, and from watching him. But watching the people who support Liz and the people who are trying to take out Liz now, I mean, it just watching the, you know, the splintering of this. Because for so many years, we were all the same. You know, we all worked for Bush. We all worked on the campaign. We all worked on the administration. So it felt very cohesive. We were all, we were all working together. We were all rowing the canoe the same direction. And now you have a lot of those people who are working at cross purposes. And, um, and I'm not saying it's good or bad or it's right or wrong. It's just been, it's just been sort of fascinating to watch how different people have, have moved off in different directions. The time came where you decided to come back to Kentucky rather than it could have been very easy. Most, a lot of people, I'd say most, but a lot of people, once they learn D.C., they know D.C., the revolving door is, uh, is active. You could have gone anywhere, I would think, not anywhere, but many places in the Capitol, the think tanks or staffs or whatever. 
but why did you decide to come back here? Yeah, uh, well, my wife and I always wanted to come home. Uh, I did turn down some jobs in Washington coming out of the White House, uh, but we always wanted to come home and raise our family here. We didn't have any kids uh, when we were in Washington, and we always had talked about when we had kids, we wanted to raise them in Kentucky. She's from Whitesville, just outside of Owensboro, also western Kentucky. And so uh, we had talked a lot about, it was one of the things that I think brought us together, was just our love of the rural upbringing that we had and and where would you want to raise a family. I, I can't imagine raising a family anywhere other than where I'm doing it right now. And so that was really the main issue. Uh, now, I will say I've been able to build a career in Kentucky that takes me back to Washington a fair amount, and it takes me to New York and takes me to Boston. And so I still get a little taste of it uh, uh, every now and again, and I enjoy that. But when you ask me where is home, home is Kentucky. Uh, I never felt like Washington was home. I always felt like Washington was a stopover for public service, and that was and I enjoyed it. And I like going there now, and I, I, I love posting my pics of the Lincoln Memorial and the cherry blossoms as much as anybody. But that's a visit. That's a place to visit. Home is is Kentucky, and, and Autumn shares that. And our and I want candidly our kids to always view it. I don't know where they'll. I don't know what will happen to them, but I always want them to think of Kentucky as home. Of course, you have the bona fides of the of the White House to sort of certainly that that buttressed your public relations you know credentials and that kind of thing but still you have to in some way start over when you come back you know when you leave a town you leave a workplace you leave and and, and you're striking out on your own yeah i i was starting over in, in a couple of ways one was i had been gone for a few years and two you know when i came out of the white house we were under siege you know this was the second term of george w bush you know, we were in the middle of all these investigations, which were all ridiculous and just stupid. But, you know, when your name's in the newspaper uh, because you were Karl Rove's deputy and your emails are all being published in the Washington Post, I mean, it just it makes it uncomfortable. And it makes it uh, it makes it you worry about, you know, what has this done to my image? You know, I, when I left here, people thought well of me. And when I'm coming home, do they still think that? What do they think of me now? Am I going to be able to make it? And uh, and I've been fortunate. I've built a really nice career here in the public relations and public affairs industry in Kentucky. But starting out, I was as unsure as anyone. Uh, plus, it was a new business for me. I'd been in journalism and I'd been in politics, but this was a whole new business. Uh, so I had a lot of, uh, you know, I have a, I'm a confident person, but I, I did have a lot of internal uncertainty there starting out. It all has worked out great. And, and I've had a really nice experience uh, back home. But I'd be lying if I said on day one, I knew I knew it was all going to work out because the truth is I didn't. See, I'm I'm conservative personally in the sense that I like having a paycheck, I like having a 401k, I like basically having someone else, you know, uh, subsidizing my medical uh, insurance. And you know, you had an existence. I'm not saying you were itinerant as a campaign person, but you do you you you, you float from employer to employer. Yeah, as a free agent, or if you will, or freelancer. You know, the White House, certainly for that period of time. But then, you know, I always have a great deal of admiration for anyone who has enough confidence in themselves, put their own name on a shingle and say, I'm going to stake my claim on this. It's worked out well for you. Yeah, uh, I think I think the uh, the confidence to do it in the private world, which I've been doing now for for many years, came from the campaign world. Because as you pointed out, you take a job on a campaign. Well, you know, the checks are going to stop on Election Day. You know, it's over. Uh, even going to work in the government for the White House. I mean, George W. Bush will leave office at some point. And so, you know, you take these things that are finite. So you're always facing an uncertain future. And getting comfortable with that and embracing that, I, I, do, I do think was good training for what I'm doing now, which is uh, being a partner at, at RunSwitch Public Relations, uh, the biggest firm in the state, one of the biggest in the region. We do work all over the country. 
But uh, you know, every two weeks we got to meet the payroll, and uh, and every year we had to make a budget, and and we have to, you know, uh, have the client base to sustain what we've built here. And so um, nothing is handed to you, nothing is given to you, and it's and 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 there's always a, you know, there's always the next thing, and and you learn that working in the campaign world. So it was a good training, I think, for me. So you know, of course, you've met a lot of people here, you have a lot of clients here, and you've built up that that client database with the more employees you have. But of course, you're you're a a, a, a big reason for that. You know, here I mean, you have other partners. Uh, uh, Steve Bryant and uh, Gary Gerdeman and and uh, who else am I missing in there? Well, Kaylee Price is one of our senior leaders. Who Kaylee and I have been working together uh, since 2008. She was like an intern for Brett Guthrie, who's a one of the best members of Congress. And uh, I met Kaylee when she was a college student working for Congressman Guthrie, then candidate Guthrie. Then she went to work for him as congressman, and uh, and she is just the best. And uh, and Kaylee and I have done public affairs together campaigns together she went to ohio with me we worked on for mitt romney together and i i, I didn't mention that yeah, yeah that you but went, but went she just the, that was 2012 yeah that's right and and but anyway kaylee's been with me uh, virtually every step of the way and is just an enormous part of my success i can't imagine having done much of this without kaylee to be honest and the same is also true for steve and gary you know steve and gary and i've been working together since about 2007 and uh, and and having a partnership with they're not from politics. Uh, Steve's an agency guy, and Gary is really a corporate guy. And uh, having their individual expertise combined with mine has made a really really substantial firm. We're a hefty firm, and we have a lot of expertise here from a lot of different areas. And they're a huge part of that, and I'm I'm grateful for them as well. So when was it that I'm trying to remember now? Because you know I used to have you on my shows, or you know I, the different things that I hosted. But when was the first crack you had again at being a national commentator? When did that happen? Good question. Well, I I had uh, you know done when I came back to Kentucky in in '08. You know, I, I immediately started doing campaigns again. I worked on Mitch McConnell's '08 race. I was a senior advisor. I ran Congressman Guthrie's first campaign, and that was a close race, a very highly targeted close race, and we won. I did uh, some more campaign work uh, in 2010 of a local nature. Ran some state senate races that uh, mm-hmm. that you know I don't think a, I don't think an incumbent state senator in Kentucky had lost a race since 1996, and I beat two of them. Uh, so that was kind of the first like independent consulting kind of stuff I did. Then in 2012, I worked for Mitt Romney in 20. 20- in Fort, Ohio. In Ohio, we lost. Very disappointing. I think we did everything we could have done. I, I, I can't think of a thing I, I wish we had done differently because we executed exactly as, as the campaign wanted us to, and we just came up short. The heartbreaker. But I came home in 2014. I went back to work and ran the independent expenditure group for Mitch McConnell. It was really after the McConnell cycle in 2014 that I started doing more commentary. Uh, after that race, uh, actually, you know what? After the 2012 race... Uh, I had started writing a newspaper column for the Courier-Journal, and then after the 14 race, that's when it started to get a little bit more national pickup. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, I didn't work for the presidential nominee, Donald Trump. I did do TV, and I started working on mostly on Fox News. I did some MSNBC, but mostly Fox. And, and several nights a week, I was the polling analyst for Britt Hume on his show, uh, the 7 o'clock show, all during that cycle. That was an interesting time because... Who had just left Fox News that he had? To Greta take? Van Susteren had okay. had had abruptly left, and they brought and Britt had kind of retired. They brought right. him back. He can, and he needed somebody basically capable, solid, 
you know, personable, uh, telegenic, if you don't mind me saying. And <laughs> I don't mind. Go on. <laughs> no, but, and, but, and but, but here's the thing about you, Scott, that I've always admired. Even in the days where you were uh, repping or, you know, stumping for a particular candidate, is that you've you've never left journalism that far behind. You always sensed, I need to bring a value to this conversation and not just rhetoric. And that, I think, is what really put your stamp on the national punditry or or analyst uh, you know uh, stage is the fact that when you came there, you were not just there to hear the talking points that I was faxed, shows my age, the talking points that I was <laughs> sent. Do you I'm sorry, when? say that again. Let, let me get on, uh, let me get my Encyclopedia Britannic out. What is that word you use? Fax? Fax? Okay. But you know, you know, be honest, at one point you did fax talking points to somebody. Oh, in the 2000 campaign, my first ever campaign job, yes. I had a a beaten up old fax machine in the Bush Cheney headquarters. And I would stand back there with press releases. And until I realized how the broadcast function on the fax machine worked, I would individually type in the phone numbers. And let me tell you, there's 120 counties in Kentucky and they all had a newspaper. And so I was literally standing there all night faxing. Then I realized you could program it and it would do it, but it would take hours for these things to go out. And, and, uh, man, I don't, I don't miss those days. Wow. My point being, <laughs> on the on the talking points, though, is that yeah. there is there are, and I think most of us can just as viewers, and and frankly, in the era of podcasts too, this is, I think people can be far more discriminating and realize that there is, you know, surrog- there are surrogates, and then there are free thinkers. You always, to me, have have where you've carved your niche is that even when you're on CNN and maybe you're the resident Republican or conservative. You also you still you see yourself to an extent as a journalist. Well, I do because I think at its core, journalism is telling people the facts and the truth. And so I never go on TV and lie. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, what what, do you, what does it take to be a success as a commentator? And I'm like, don't lie. Don't lie for anyone else <laughs> if they ask you to. Don't die on every hill. And make sure you're adding some value here beyond what anyone could just pick up anywhere else. And that that's it. That's the secret. And uh, and I see a lot of people, and they just, you know, like you said, they're good at reading the talking points. My view is anyone can do that. What can I do? What's unique to me? And I think that uh, when I was doing the, the Fox stuff with Britt Hume, you know, I really was trying to give the viewers some insight into the polling that was available to kind of let them, like, into the conversation a little bit. What What's being discussed inside the campaigns as a response to this? I mean, anybody can look at the numbers and see, but what does it mean? What What will this strategically mean? Uh, how would a campaign react to this when they get it? Uh, and and I try to I try to blend all that that those facts, the truth, and then the analysis together into the product that is is my commentary. And so I do carry that journalism gene inside of me. And uh, and um, I tell you, where people get in trouble in this business is uh, is is just not being honest about what's happening and trying to spin a yarn. Because they think it, you know, they think it's their job to spin something. No, your your job isn't. Your job is to deliver some kind of honesty, uh, and about what's happening. And that may be good for your side one day, but it may be bad one day. But you have to be honest with the audience enough to admit it when it's one or the other. You've counseled me in uh, communications, corporate communications, or strategic communications uh, realms. The other lesson I think in that is don't talk about things about which you don't know anything. Yeah. And 
I would think in your role now on CNN, where you've been five years? Five years. Uh, There are times where you might be called upon to comment on a developing story situation. Heck, the situation in Ukraine and military experts are out there. You have to be careful, I would think. Not to be, we, we all have a tendency to want to be helpful. We, if, if people ask us a question, we want to be able to give them an answer. Right. But you have to know your own limits. Yeah, and you, and you have to know also, what am I there to do? You know, nobody is looking to me to analyze troop movements. But what they might be looking to me to do is to analyze how our leaders might be processing their decisions in the context of our political environment. So when I, when I get put into the situations where we're discussing subject matters, well, even on like coronavirus stuff, you know, I'm not a doctor, you know, but what I am, what I can tell you is about public opinion and, and political sentiment and how that might impact a politician's strategic thinking when dealing with a massive crisis. And so that's the value I play. And, and, and that's a good lesson. Don't, don't be something you're not. Do what you do. And, and inside of all of us, we all have some kind of an expertise. And in this particular job that I have for CNN, I'm trying to provide analytical insights that are unique to my experience and to my expertise. So what I do on um, – it's, it's just for fun. My, my hobby is to go on Twitter and to look for the mentions of Scott Jennings KY <laughs> and see what people are saying, the regular, the, the rank-and-file CNN viewers after you make an appearance. I would say um, here are my main observations of the responses. First of all, you must smirk a lot. This, I, I hear the word smirk. I see the word smirk a lot. Um, why is he allowed to be on CNN? I get see, that a lot. I, I see that a lot. Yep. Um, other things are just sort of obscenities. Uh, no, there, but then are, then there are occasionally. But I will say, I will see this as well. I'll say, you know, like I can't stand saying this, but he really made a good point, or I appreciate the fact that you know he's willing to admit something positive about our side. What's that like to be? You're kind of in the lion's den there. I mean, there's it's CNN kind of went the way of MSNBC there, you know, editorially for a while. I don't know what it is now under the new leadership there or where it's going to be with right now. I think they've kind of went, went back to their roots, if you will, from the, I remember the Persian Gulf War originally and Bernard Shaw and, and, and that whole team and Wolf Blitzer originally. And they really, I think, have shown their strength as an international and, and national political and global powerhouse there. Anyway, but what's, but politically speaking, there certainly is an expectation from at least among viewers for this CNN talent to carry the water of more of the liberal or democratic side? Well, you know, I have to say, I've never been censored or told what to say in this job. And when I got hired for it, uh, my boss, all she ever said to me was, we just need you to be your authentic self and to give your opinion based on your own experience and your expertise and what you really think. That's it. That's the only directions I ever got. And I just, I, I, I tell myself that every time we have one. I've done thousands of panels now, and, and it's still the instructions I'm operating on today. And I think it's actually served me pretty well. I mentioned this earlier, but I'm not, I am never going to die on every hill. There are a lot of people in this business who will die on every hill. And no matter how dumb it is, I'm going to defend it until the last. That is the most credibility sapping thing you can do. And I just am not going to do it. Um, The most troubling commentary that you mentioned that I hear is this, why is this person allowed to speak? And I actually think it, it, it speaks to a larger issue in this country where you know, you have significant number of partisans uh, on both ends of the spectrum who think that the other side should be literally banished from the public square. I, I specifically think 
in the progressive left, there are people who think that we should not allow conservatives, you know, on the channels that we should own. Mm-hmm. And this is terrible for America, by the way, for people to think this. Uh, we need to have free and open public debate. One of the reasons I love this job on CNN is their willingness to put me on in the face of that, I think, is good for our national political discourse. I, a lot of my conservative friends have asked me, why don't you go be on a conservative channel? Why aren't you on Fox more? Right. You know, why don't you do that? And I think to myself, why do we have to silo ourselves? You know, why do we have to all get in a in a silo here and talk only to each other? Why why can't we have a Republican talking to the the CNN audience? Why can't you have and and on Fox? Why and they have some, but you know, why can't a Democrat talk to the Fox audience? Why can't we talk to each other? And I go back to my days at the McConnell Center when we did talk to each other and and my academic training there and think about that a lot today. And so. I value my role because I know that a lot of the people that are watching aren't going to agree with me, uh, but I do think it's important for the conversation to occur. And uh, I, I do I do pay a little bit of attention to what people say because I'm always interested in when I say something that you don't expect, when I zig when you think I'm going to zag, I'm, I'm curious about how that hit the audience's ear. Scott Jennings is a uh, longtime friend of mine, and you know how much I value your friendship, Scott. It means uh, the world. Uh, we... We have gone through a lot together. We have gone through some some great cardinal seasons and some and some bad cardinal seasons. I've uh, I babysat your chickens, uh, <laughs> not my children. I would never allow that. Chickens, <laughs> yes. Children, no. <laughs> anyway, it's uh, it, it's we've 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 gone past the hour mark, and I think for our podcast purposes, I think we should probably uh, call it a day here. But uh, thank you for your friendship. Thank you, and thanks for being part of this show. I think we have really made some good shows. You know, we were in here last night uh, doing our roundtable, which we're going to take a, a break this week because we're on spring break. But I thought last night's show was terrific. Just the free-flowing conversation. Jared's behind the board. He was part of it. Kevin was here. And I, I just think these conversations are fun. I mean, this is kind of a fun thing to do, uh, but I think there's a lot of value in this. So I think for you and me, from where we come from, from all the things we've been through, from the background we have, Producing something of a high quality for the audience is meaningful to us, and I think we're doing that. And I wouldn't—it wouldn't be possible unless you were part of it. Thanks for sharing your story with us, and thanks for listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.